I think one of the reasons that a lot of companies in our space specifically haven't made the same breakthroughs, haven't been able to make the progress that we've made is because they have two people, uh, one a tech person, one a finance person, and it's really, really hard to talk to each other well or well enough to actually make these really complicated breakthroughs in machine learning research, which require in-depth understanding of the domain in order to inform your research approach. And that in-depth understanding needs to be integrated into your research approach, integrated into your product development, integrated into everything you do in order to achieve any sort of result. Chris, welcome to uh, Waterloo Grit. Um, thanks for being with us. Um, to give you a sense of the lay of the land, we have amazing entrepreneurs who are going to listen and get inspired by your story and what you've done. Um, so looking forward to uh, chatting with you. I wanted to start off by asking uh, you to give us a sense of who you are, uh, what you've done, a bit of your background, and let's uh, go from there. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. Um, yeah, so I'm the CEO and founder of Bedrock AI, um, which, you know, as you know, is uh, a tech, financial text processing uh, startup. We serve mainly uh, investors. Uh, but prior to working on Bedrock AI, um, I actually started my career as a CPA. I worked in financial statement audit. Mm -hmm. Uh, but my real passion was around economics and econometrics, securities regulation. Um, and I had always wanted to do a degree in econometrics. <laughs> I ended up turning that into instead a degree in data, got really involved in, you know, Python programming um, and did a, a degree, ended up transitioning to data science, worked for a number of years in corporate governance advisory. Uh, so very much still in the in the corporate realm, um, but working as a data scientist and also on the side as a Python uh, programming instructor. And that experience was very much foundational in getting me here. Yeah, which is an amazing story right there in itself, right? It's, it's very rare that you come across um, someone with a CPA background who gets into tech. Um, or the other way around. So what was the motivation? Why did you jump into, and specifically Python, right? I'd love to hear what was, what were you thinking when you got into it? What was your motivation? And a follow-up to that is, was it intimidating? Right, yeah, so I was lucky in that I was hanging out with a bunch of software developers at the time, mm -hmm. and I think that was pretty helpful um, from the intimidation perspective because when you're not involved in tech, I think a lot of people has it, have this perception of programming and software developing being this really hard thing uh, that only people who are Mark Zuckerberg can, can pull off. And then if you end up hanging out with enough software developers, you realize, you know, not everyone's a genius and everyone's doing just fine. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I just started getting 
into it bit by bit. I started out while I was still working um, in audit, just playing around with it um, and really enjoying it. I, you know, mm. when you're an auditor, you don't get to you don't get to build anything. You don't actually get to see yourself adding value. And when you're coding, it's just this immediate feedback system. You know, you can set up a web app in a <laughs> 10 minutes using Python and have it actually do something useful, um, which is totally addictive. <laughs> and, and had you done any um, courses in uh, either in, in high school or a minor or had you had any exposure to software development till then? No, I did have um, a decent stats background though. Mm -hmm. So from a data science perspective, I did have um, you know, a decent background in, in that side of the equation. Got it. Yeah, and, and I, I just love the idea of how you were able to, and still continue to operate in the intersection of these two fascinating realms. Um, so why Python? Why not, I don't know, R or something else? Python is definitely just the, I think it's really the only good way to go if you're working in machine learning mm -hmm. um, these days. R is fantastic from a stats perspective. You know, if I was doing pure stats, I would definitely choose R over Python. Okay. Um, but like, there's just the open source community for Python is way bigger mm -hmm. and there's way more support for all of the things you need to do um, compared to, to some other languages. Understood. And you know, this is great conversation by Tim Ferriss, which talks about, do you go the generalist route or do you go the specialized route, right? And I think it's interesting for entrepreneurs who are just starting their journey to figure out how much of a generalist should one be? Because at the end of the day, as, as, as you know, best. As a CEO, you, you've got to keep your fingers in every department, every function of the organization, but at the same time, be the master potentially of one, right? So and eventually he concludes this conversation by saying, um, maybe the future is that of specialized generalists. So if you were to don that hat of a specialized generalist, would you think of yourself as a specialist as in, in the financial realm or in the development realm? Or the other way around, you think of yourself as a generalist, which I think you have to be because you're the CEO, but your specialization does it change, I guess, on a day-to-day -day basis. That's a really interesting question. And I find the areas in which I need to quote-unquote specialize mm -hmm. have evolved really rapidly mm. over the course of you know, our life as a business. Mm -hmm. When I started the company, um, it was just me. <laughs> and all I did was code all day mm -hmm. and try to get something working. And then uh, you know, Suhas Pai came in as co-founder um, and he's a brilliant natural language processing uh, practitioner. Mm -hmm. um, and he took away a lot of the more, um, you know, a really technical machine learning work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, but I was still very much involved 
in the development. And that was how we worked for a good, you know, eight months. Mm. Uh, and now <laughs> the majority of my job is CEOing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether that's sales, content marketing, um, hiring, um, yeah, explaining to people what, uh, what our platform does, how it works, a lot of interpersonal skills, um, which is, you know, a complete 180 from where I was focused, mm. you know, fairly recently. Right. Yeah. And, and you touched upon two interesting topics and I'll come back to your co-founder in a second. What I'm interested in is a piece that you touched upon, right? The evolution of the CEO's um, mandate and style of functioning. I, you know, if you look at early stage entrepreneurs, and I think you guys are way past all that, but how do you, what advice would you give to founders in terms of being adaptable to changing their management style, right? As, as, as the company evolves, as you have more employees, as you have more customers, more traction, more money, stakeholder reporting upstairs to the board. Um, yeah, walk us through how, how that change has affected you and, and what you continue to do as you evolve as a CEO. I think a big part of it for me was when I started out this path, I really, my goal was to be, I had all these personal career goals that I wanted to fulfill through the business. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was around becoming, you know, a, a respectable machine learning researcher. Mm -hmm. uh, and as the business has devolved, evolved, uh, my uh, goals and aspirations mm -hmm. have merged with what's best for the business. And until they're sort of indistinguishable, but that was a transition. I think I was um, really attached to my technical role, mm -hmm. uh, probably for longer than I should have been. Mm -hmm. uh, and at some point I just said, you know what? <laughs> I, I have to be a, a, a CEO as my primary focus. That's what that's for the business. Mm -hmm. No, let's no looking back. Right, right. Then yeah. Going back to the co-founders, um, so I take it you have um, two co-founders, right? Or, or, or you have a CTO and a COO. And one thing I noticed was, right. I mean, obviously your CTO is the specialist in technology. Your COO also has a CPA. And very conveniently, you have a foot in both, right? You're, you're, you're a lead developer. You are also a CPA. Is that a boon? Um, a blessing or, or is it difficult because it comes with, you know, its own bias and, and stuff like that? So what do you mean from a bias perspective? So let's say in the ideal world, if you don't have both those um, perspectives and you're a, you're a pure generalist, let's say you're a strategy person then you come on board and you completely delegate the uh, work in terms of technology development to the CTO. Whereas here, mm -hmm. and the other way around, to, uh, from an operations perspective. Whereas here, you actually have reasonably good insights into what the role entails. And therefore, do you think that there is an inherent bias in the way you think and that, that translates into uh, conversations with your, with your founders in both sides? So I think, 
I'm clearly biased, but I think the way we operate, um, where all of us have technical expertise on both sides, um, is better. I think one of the reasons that a lot of companies in our space specifically haven't made the same breakthroughs, haven't been able to make the progress that we've made is because they have two people, uh, one a tech person, one a finance person, and it's really, really hard to talk to each other Mm -hmm. well or well enough to actually make these really complicated breakthroughs in machine learning research, which require in-depth understanding of the domain in order to inform your research approach. Mm-hmm. And that in-depth in understanding needs to be integrated into your research approach, integrated into your product development, integrated into everything you do in order to achieve any sort of result. Um, and we saw that for a while. I mean, we spent months with absolutely nothing working at all. Um, and, you know, we are obviously have a lot of very specific expertise in this area. Um, and I, you know, I attribute our eventual success um, to the fact that Suhas is a very domain focused approach to research. I am a financial expert uh, with a lot of machine learning um, capabilities. And that was what got us to where we are. Mm. Well, that, that's, that's such an interesting perspective. Um, in the sense, and maybe this is our I'd love for you to give advice to our founders, right? If you hustle in the trenches to try and develop a solution, uh, a a product, sorry, that addresses a solution to a problem that you started chasing, are you better off as an early stage founder trying to to figure out what that fit is, that, that minimum viable product that specifically addresses a problem? Or do you get to a point where you say, you know what, maybe we're chasing a problem that a can be cannot be solved, or B is not large enough, and therefore we've got to shift our goalpost. In your experience, what drove you to staying the course? So, we were convinced of the magnitude of the problem hmm. the whole time, and you know it's. I'm not, you know, I think there are a lot of people would have given up not having seen, seen results from our research early, early on. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, machine learning research is non-deterministic. If you're developing an app that's going to let people buy cars online or help people date or any of that, um, you know, you build it. <laughs> you make a design, you build it, and it's built. Uh, but we... Uh, we're relying on something that we believed was possible but hadn't proved yet. So it's, it's very much, our process is a lot more like, you know, development of a new uh, pharmaceutical hmm. uh, or, or biotech or something like that, where it's more of a, a moonshot idea and it's about your passion for the topic, the belief that there is a solution out there that you can make the breakthrough. Hmm. Um, but success is... is just e- creation of the actual product that solves the problem is by no means guaranteed. Mm, got it. Yeah, and I would love to double click on that, right? For our audience who are if that's not conversed with machine learning, just to simplistically break it down, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I would say the the challenge would be a 
you've got to build a model and, and, and iterate that model multiple times. And B, you've got to train that model. And then C, in real time, you give it data and the model spits out um, based off of training data set, it figures out solutions. So in your case, quite like the example that you cited, the challenge is, I guess, to do A, B, and C over and over. Is, is, would that be the way to think about it? Did you get it right? Yeah, so I can go. So to give a bit more depth about the specific challenges we were facing, mm -hmm. so we're using deep learning based mo uh, language models mm -hmm. um, on our back ends. Um, and we're using these language models to read and understand really complicated financial disclosure, mm. financial and legal disclosure from corporate entities. Um, for the people who aren't familiar with language models, um, these models convert words and sentences to mathematical vectors or embeddings that represent meaning. Mm -hmm. They're incredibly powerful. Probably most people who are listening are already aware of them. They're already aware of OpenAI, GPT-3, um, so, you know, obviously what's possible with this new technology is incredible. There's so much opportunity here, and I think that's clear to anyone who's been paying attention to the field. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a whole bunch of limitations to these models and a whole bunch of things that, you know, haven't really been solved by the community. Mm. The most obviously one of those are most talked about is of course bias. They're incredibly racist, sexist, um, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, but for us, you know, <laughs> less, less of a problem because we're dealing with financial data. Um, but for us, uh, some of the challenges what we were dealing with is these models don't perform well on long form text. Mm. And um, we're also dealing with a situation where in order to understand what's going on, the human being reading it needs to have a really, really high degree of expertise. Um, and it's really challenging to disambiguate between what's important and what's unimportant. The unimportant stuff is linguistically and structurally very similar to the stuff that matters. So that disambiguation task is really, really challenging. Um, so we're not just taking, we can't just take a model that exists in open source and run it a whole bunch of times and go, oh, I hope it will work. You know, we need to use really um, innovative, creative solutions to try to go somewhere that, you know, the research community hasn't yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is amazing but at, at multiple levels, right? When you think of entrepreneurs who are trying to find that, that beachhead, right? And then make an entry point and start scaling. And you look at what you guys have done. I find it amazing that uh, we are dealing with data that's potentially not publicly available. Number two, it's unstructured. So how do you how do you create the beachhead? How do you go around talking and enticing? It is them? publicly available. Oh, it is okay. So how do you land your first customer? Because your model is not yet fully tested and ready yet. And at the same time, you also want the customer to sort of buy into the into this dream that you want to sell, right? So how do you make that first sale or how did you make that first sale? So we actually, we got our beta users uh, through inbounds. Uh, mm -hmm. We got 
a few cross mentions, one early. I did an interview with Alex Danko, who I believe you're, you know of mm-hmm. at least, um, and his sub stack is read by a million people, including hedge funds and this, that, and the other thing. So we got a whole bunch of inbounds for interviews and, and things like that, um, and that's how we got our first uh, beta users. We were fairly selective in that process, mm-hmm. and then... Um, you know, of their bit, of course, the product was very early and there was a higher degree of noise than there are now. Um, so, um, but fortunately, there were a few people in that beta group who, you know, needed the solution so badly that they were willing to put up with the um, early nature and, and did end up paying for it for actually a, a in a way that was very... Uh, <laughs> Exciting at the time, right. um, given you know, like it's you know a, a, the, a full price point and, mm-hmm. and on all of that. Got it. Yeah. And, and a question there, which often entrepreneurs struggle with, right? Do you did you were you okay if the project would if the sorry if the pilot would have been not paid, or would you have maintained discipline to say you got to pay something to show skin in the game? So, yeah, coming out of beta, we kicked everybody out if they didn't pay. Mm, got it. I think we were maybe, because of some early successes, we were maybe a bit too confident that our product was awesome at the time. Right. Um, so we weren't afraid of kicking people out. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not even sure that that was um, the right move. It is really important to to get that early feedback and, and make sure that your product is useful to a wide variety of, mm-hmm. of users. Yeah, but it also comes, like you said, with the subconscious discipline, right? So the team can focus on where there's return on that investment. And oftentimes, I guess entrepreneurs struggle with the idea of, here's a bunch of paying customers, here's a bunch of potential pilots that may translate to revenue. Where do you where do you choose your lane that, that lands you with this high-frequency customer, which then becomes your product market? It's so nebulous. Um, I often wonder. Yeah, and we've definitely had conversations about this internally, and also with you know our Y Combinator partners. Of you know, at what point is it? If this is a really big fish, mm-hmm. they're a really huge company. Is it worth us? spending X amount of time letting them on for this long for free, this, that, and the other. And really the conclusion we've come to is um, you all, we only let someone on the platform mm-hmm. um, if they're a part of our current customer base uh, or just outside of it. And if they're just outside of it, they better be willing to give a ton of feedback because they're not going to convert, right? We haven't built for that yet. The reason we're letting them on for free is only if they're going to be incredibly helpful to our um, development process. Mm-hmm. And then we only let somebody pay, stay on for free, you mm-hmm. know, if they're providing useful feedback on the product, they're logging in weekly or daily, um, and we're really seeing that engagement. We can track their usage. We're using that information. Um, to improve our product actively, mm-hmm. and then everyone else just cut them, cut them, focus. <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, 
and maybe this is a great time for you to talk about uh, bedrock, right, and the value proposition for the, the dashboard, the filings of interest, uh, watch list, the third one that you had highlighted on the web. So fundamentally, uh, what we do, you know, Bedrock AI is software that, ex that extracts hard-to-find information from securities filings or, or corporate filings. So think of a 10K annual report. Uh, our focus um, currently is on extracting information that's predictive or indicative of downside risk, crisis, specifically malfeasance, fraud, earnings manipulation, those types of bad events. Um, and we currently serve our customers through you know, a SaaS-based model. We have a web dashboard where our institutional customers can access you know, over 7,000 different tickers or, or, or stocks. Um, and we update our platform in real time as new filings get posted. Um, so we're processing an enormous amount of information every day. Um, and instead of the investor um, spending three hours going through some of these filings, um, we process them in a matter of seconds and can show our, our users the information they need to see immediately. Um, and just one note for people who may not be familiar with the space, which I think is a lot of people, even if you are involved in, in retail investing, uh, most people think of financial information as being primarily numeric, um, but all publicly listed companies have to disclose and put out an enormous amount of textual information, just disclosure. Uh, the average annual report in the U.S. is longer than Shakespeare's Hamlet. It's absurd. Um, <laughs> it's just it's an overwhelming amount of information. Uh, there is really important disclosure, uh, context for the numbers you're seeing. The financial statements don't essentially are meaningless unless you have a lot of the context around accounting policy, around the uh, parties involved in the transactions, you know, whether or not collateral for the loan is actually gone missing or gone up in flames, things like that. Um, and because there's such a huge compliance burden and so much new disclosure being packed into these, mm -hmm. Uh, investment professionals just do not have the time to be able to effectively process all of this information mm -hmm. from a human perspective. Makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for really breaking that down to us. Um, a follow-up question there was uh, a very interesting commentary right, on your website, which talks about... Um, short sellers and hedge funds, um, and your ability to sniff out uh, corporate fraud. And I was keen to get your view on, you know, what the world went through um, early this year with, uh, uh, with the whole GameStop episode. And mm -hmm. it was fascinating at multiple levels, right? One was the idea of how large hedge funds can be really brought to their knees uh, by this sort of democratized indie subreddit folks. Uh, and the other is how much information out there and the analysis and synthesis of which would potentially have prevented this, either for the fund 
either either for the hedge fund or the asset manager who had to pump in a lot of money, um, or even for for retail investors. So you have a sense of um, I guess two questions, right? Yeah, if you can walk us through how you folks can play a role, bedrock plays a role, and in the future, do you see yourselves playing a larger role? Definitely. Uh, you know, I think to answer your uh, question last, we definitely see ourselves playing a larger role going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, our mission is corporate accountability through information transparency. We really want the information um, about corporate entities, about stocks being more, you know, better understood, mm-hmm. uh, a lot more accessible to a lot more people. Um, that said, you know, the GameStop uh, saga is so, so interesting. Um, you know, as as you mentioned, our focus is malfeasance and fraud. Um, a lot of short sellers are looking for fraud specifically um, as a thesis of, you know, this stock is going to decrease in price because people will eventually realize this is a sham. Mm-hmm. Um, but GameStop wasn't a fraud. No one was betting against GameStop because, like, GameStop was a failing business mm-hmm. that was honestly, it, they were doing, they were failing in a way that was honest. Um, I, I, I don't think anyone was accusing them of, of manipulating earnings or, or mm-hmm. being aggressive. You know, they were just a sort of humdrum company um, and people were betting that the stock would go down because, you know, it's COVID and who's going to go into a retail store that sells, what is it, video games? Yeah, games, yeah. Um, yeah, so I just, like, it seemed like a solid short seat thesis, and then a whole bunch of people decided <laughs> that they wanted to buy the stock, right. and it's just this most incredible, strange market phenomenon that has never happened before um, and looks to continue to happen. And, I mean, I don't, the sort of retail excitement about very specific stocks for reasons that don't necessarily make sense to mm. a lot of market participants is I don't I don't think we specifically have a role there. Like our our role is very much about, you know, understanding the true fundamentals of the business. Retail investors really analyze the true fundamentals of the business. Um, but I don't know if that discussion would have or could have played into a GameStop um, situation because no one was talking about the fundamentals Mm. of the business. It was (laughs) stonks, stonks, rocket, rocket, let's all buy this, let's try to do a a gamma squeeze, a short squeeze, and none of that stuff really ever materially impacted the stock price, it looks like, based on the SEC investigation into it. It was just a whole bunch of people who were psyched and bought the stock together. Yeah, I, I agree with you, right? I mean, I don't know if there's any intentional malfeasance there, but they, they, these guys figured out a way to hack the system uh, in order to make money. In your roadmap, Chris, do you ever see... You don't have to answer this if it's uh, too cool to be answered, but do you ever see yourself developing an application that eventually ends up in the hands of the consumer. Um, especially now, right? I mean, you look at, when I constantly come across 
individual investors who are in crypto. They don't understand what is crypto, what, what it's supposed to do, what are the risks, disclosure statements by all these new coins yeah. that are being formulated. So do you ever see yourselves playing a role in the hands of yeah, I think that's a great point. We see individuals becoming a lot more sophisticated than they ever were um, and a lot more focused on due diligence. And I think mm-hmm. there's some actually very talented um, retail investors out there. Um, we are, we have, of course, talked about, you know, is there room for us to create a retail tool? What would that look like? How would we implement that? For now, our focus is on institutional mm-hmm. investors, um, financial institutions, etc. The reason we've made that choice is, you know, in general, the people who care about risk, who care about malfeasance, who care about crisis, are much more concentrated in the professional side. Uh, And Mm -hmm. that's just where we see a lot more demand. Um, You know, I think potentially in the future, we could create some sort of ancillary tool for for our our retail um, audience. Our concerns are, are more around, you know, how do we make sure it's explainable how do we make sure that you know they're actually able to interpret these results that no one's seeing us highlight risks going out shorting a stock losing Mm -hmm. all of their money (laughs) um and those risks are just a lot those risks to us are a lot lower if we're focused exclusively on professionals yeah Yep, makes sense. Yeah, and then thanks for bringing that up. Um, switching topics a bit, um, you folks went through a fundraise recently. Um, walk us through that exercise. How cathartic was that? Yeah, I think every founder is always nervous about fundraising. You always, well, no, what, what if no one else buys into this idea? Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I'd, I'd been through the Accelerator uh, Center, the Jumpstart program, and I just finished Y Combinator. And Y Combinator makes it so, 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 so easy to raise. And I am incredibly thankful to them. They have their demo day um, process set up. But because we were in Y Combinator, because we got featured in, mm-hmm. in Hacker News, because of all of this, we didn't have to reach out to one investor. Um, we had, I don't know, 40 investor meetings more set up before demo day even happened. Mm-hmm. I think in one day I did 20, sorry, in two days I did 22 investor meetings. There was just a ton of interest in our space, a ton of interest in the idea, and um, it made yeah. fundraising really comparatively very, very low stress. Mm-hmm. So. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Completely and, and virtual. Completely virtual, right? Yeah. Otherwise, how would I have done 22 That's investor amazing. meetings in two days? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so that, that's amazing. Um, and, and congratulations. Um, the experience of the ease of fundraise, do you think is attributable to the U.S. slash the Valley being what it is, or you think it's YC or, or a, I combination think it's a combination of the, of the two? I think 
now is a really good time to be fundraising as a startup. Uh, it's a pretty mm -hmm. hot market. There's just a lot of money in the venture capital realm. Um, and we were able to take advantage of that. Yeah. Y Combinator does a really good job of forcing investors to move quickly because they do feel like they're competing mm -hmm. um, to get onto your cap table, uh, which mm -hmm. really shortens timelines. You know, we were essentially able to get nearly everything done in about three weeks, which is, you know, it's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, and that was because of, you know, they've, Y Combinator has essentially created this artificial time pressure where, you know, these companies graduate at this time. If you're not on their radar and mm -hmm. on their cap table, you know, by that time, you're probably going to miss out. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And did you have to say no? We to did money? say no to money. Um, yeah, which is, yeah. That's a, that's a great place to be. Not, not because you're saying no to money, because it gives you a sense of external validation, right? It's, it's one thing for entrepreneurs to just fall in love with what they do, but when you have external investors who are lining up to, to, to invest and build a story with you, the ability to say no because you want to you know, keep things honest and intact is... Very commendable. Yeah, it it does. It does feel good. Why Combinator throughout the whole process repeated mm -hmm. to us, if you do well in fundraising, it has absolutely no correlation with your success. Mm -hmm. People who do too well in fundraising <laughs> spend all of their money, make poor decisions, and end up highly diluted. Uh, and they just repeat that to you right. over and over and over and over again. Um, so I think we feel generally more humble about, wow, this was easy. Um, mm -hmm. We're so glad that we didn't have to spend time away from our business to get this rather than the fact that investors like us means that we're more likely to succeed. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and that is such a true and honest statement. I sat on both sides as an entrepreneur who raised money and, and couldn't successfully give my investors an exit. I'm also sat on the other side as an investor trying to tell the entrepreneurs, you know, stay focused and humble because it's so easy to get lost in the, in the, in the picture, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the woods still need to have trees. So focus on the, yeah. keep your focus on the trees. Um, from your experience, Chris, the, uh, having been exposed uh, to both ecosystems, and I mean geographically, uh, the U.S. and Canada, what would you highlight our stark differences? Yeah, so we only have one Canadian investor on our cap table. The reason being wasn't that we didn't talk mm -hmm. to any Canadian investors or Canadian investors weren't interested. It's just that by the time we closed our round or were approaching closing our round, none of the Canadian investors had finished doing their due diligence. Um, so whereas in the U S and internationally, um, seed stage Y Combinator companies are generally not subject to due diligence to, a, to illustrate that point. Some of the investment we got 
was through investors who never, to this day, have never met me. They've never talked to me. Um, mm, they said, we'd like to invest, give us your best terms. So that's quite extreme. Um, but a more general process mm -hmm. for a U.S. investor who's used to investing in Y Combinator companies, they'll meet you once for half an hour, decide if they like you, bring in their partner or another two partners, mm -hmm. meet you with, for, with you a second time, make sure everybody else is on board, you get the money. Um, obviously in exchange for the investment. But um, it's, it's just, it's very smooth. It's very low effort. Um, whereas Canadian investors tend mm -hmm. to, you know, actually do due diligence. They're not necessarily looking through your financials in depth, but they do, they ask for financials. Uh, they uh, have you talk to customers or pitch to customers in front of them. There's just a lot more um, happening and required in order for that to, to get a Canadian investor to open their, their, their purse strings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. And the follow-up question there is, what do you think is your runway to the next um, Series A or, or pre-Series A institutional So run? we have about uh, 22 months of runway, uh, but our goal is to get to Series A in about 16 or 17 months. Yeah. Makes sense. I keep telling entrepreneurs, um, you know, I think about a decade ago or even half a decade ago, entrepreneurs had the luxury of spend time fundraising, which, which can often be a distraction. Once you raise the money and the money hits the bank, uh, focus on building the business, you know, year or two later, go back to fundraising. But now I think we live in a world where you've got to allocate a certain percentage of your bandwidth for a fundraising period, like right throughout keep speaking to entrepreneurs, sorry, investors, even if you're not proactively fundraising, but it, the ability to extricate ideas from the investors' heads is so worth it. Um, so do you buy into that theory or would you say double down on the business focus and like you said, a few months later, get back on the saddle and go fundraising? I definitely subscribe to the, the latter theory. Uh, what, that said, okay, so I would say hmm. we spend a lot of time talking to our investors who have deep expertise in the business, in, 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 in finance, in, in markets, because hmm. they have an incentive to, give up, to help us, and they, and they do often. So we do spend a fair bit of time, but that's because it, it, it helps our business actively. Um, but, you know, my perspective is mm -hmm. if we create a business with high growth, um, that's doing really, really well, we're going to be able to fundraise. So no matter, it won't matter how much time I spend chatting with investors in the interim, if the business is strong, I'm going to be able to, to we're, you know, we're going to be able to raise. Hmm. Yeah, no, touche, well said. I agree with you. Um, and if we're up against time, I wish we could keep this conversation going, but uh, on, a, on a parting note, what would be the one sentence or one word advice that you have for 
entrepreneurs who have a product, they're trying to figure out who their customers are and they're on the cusp of scaling, but they don't know it yet. Oh, one sentence. I would say, <laughs> I, know, I, I, I would, the advice I would give is embrace the pain, mm-hmm. um, embrace the discomfort, just, mm. it's not going to be fun. <laughs> um, you know, you know, in order to succeed, you need to go through a lot of, you know, failing a lot of it, you know, having people shatter your yeah. hopes and dreams. Um, Again and again and again. And running a startup is a lot like being an endurance athlete. It's just, you know, can you get up again and try again? Um, because no one's succeeding their first go around um, in, in any sort of disruptive industry. Yeah, spot on. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Fully, fully <laughs> appreciate it. Completely agree with you. Um, it's been absolutely a pleasure talking to you, Chris. Thank you for taking time out. Um, and we look forward to potentially bringing you back here. Good luck with everything that you're doing. Thank and, you uh, so much. This was really, really fun. <laughs>